one of the cool things about Groundhog Day, I show that in one of my class, in that happiness class that I teach. Mm -hmm. And it's an interesting one way of looking at that movie is that Bill Murray's character, Phil, Phil Connors, is, is fortunate the right to be able to live the same day over and over again, even though it's a kind of pur purgatory for him, you know, but he's mm -hmm. able to live the same day over and over again so he can experiment with what really makes him happy. Right. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like he's sort of a scientist. Three, two, one. Welcome back to the Nerding Out with That Nerdy Catholic. I'm That Nerdy Catholic, Seth Payne, and we're joined again today with Brent Robbins. Uh, Brent Robbins is a professor of psychology. Last week, we talked about his starting into psychology, what got him into that. We talked about his research and joy. Uh, and then we also talked a bit about the difference between how he viewed uh, joy before uh, his entry into the Catholic Church before he became a Christian and then after, and looking into the, the role of transcendence in, in joy. And so today we're going to really focus on that research, on the work that he's done in the area of joy. Brent, it's good to have you back. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me, Seth. So last week you talked a little bit about the four areas of joy, the four kinds of joy. So why don't you go start off with that? What are the four areas of joy and and kind of describe the four of them? Yeah, so I would say that there's four types of, you might say, visions of the good life is how I would describe mm -hmm. them. That there's uh, the hedonic view that the way that you become happy, the way that you live a good life is to maximize pleasure and to avoid pain. Mm -hmm. And by, by the way, that one uh, is what we're finding is that when people have a kind of hedonic ethic, for example, when they score high on measures of material values, like accumulating mm -hmm. material pleasures is uh, important to them, they tend to be less happy, ironically. Hmm. So it's, it tends to be ironically counterproductive. Uh, and then there's prudential happiness, which is defined as a engagement with life. So you're engaged in some way, you're immersed, right, in your life. Mm -hmm. And that is an interesting one. Uh, there does seem to be something about that when people are living a good life that they're very engaged, but there's not a moral dimension to prudential. So you could really be a sociopath and be a very engaged sociopath and you would meet mm -hmm. the definition of the good life. And I don't think anybody wants to say that sociopaths are living a good life. So that's a problem mm -hmm. with prudential vision of the good life. And then the third one, which goes back to Aristotle and uh, in our own Catholic tradition, St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, the whole concept of eudaimonic uh, happiness as a life of excellence, a life of virtue. Mm -hmm. And there's been a real revolution in research, in, in psychology within the past few years. There's kind of an overturning of the hedonic uh, view towards uh, a eudaimonic understanding of happiness. Mm. And that started, I guess, around, I would say, two th early 2000s. You know, mm -hmm. uh, we started to see the ship, Marty Seligman and this guy, Chris Peterson, put together what they called the Handbook of Character Strengths and Virtues. And that started a whole movement toward the study of what sometimes is called psychological well-being, 
but that's just a term for you know uh, eudaimonic well-being mm. and then a fourth type of uh, well-being is chironic so chironic vision of the good life is one where you feel blessed where you feel like life is a gift a sense of being mm -hmm. fortunate uh, an openness to the mystery it, it evokes feelings of awe gratitude uh, appreciation of you mm -hmm. know and all that uh, is is linked to the sense that a good life is a kind of spiritual fruit uh, mm -hmm. of, of, of having a spiritual life in a relationship to the transcendent. When you're looking at that, that fourth, that chironic vision of, of the good life, is that something that is more seen by some, uh, by psychologists that have more of a religious background? Or is that something that, that any psychologist would look at and say, okay, well, that this is, you know, there, there's something here. Yeah, I think that, no, you don't tend to see it very often in, you know, more mainstream psychology. That may change because I think the evidence is building in that regard. Mm -hmm. Where I think you see it among more secular psychologists is when, within existential and humanistic psychology, which, which is secular, but it, it tends to have, it's, it, because of the existential tradition, which is sometimes mm -hmm. theistic and sometimes not, there's, there is an interest in experiences of the sublime. You know, mm -hmm. you, can you know, they go back to Kant and, you know, Edmund Burke and their interest in the, 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 the sublime. In many ways, the mm -hmm. humanistic and existential traditions go back to the romantic uh, movement, you know, and uh, some of those ideas. So you, 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 mm -hmm. there's a, there's a, there's a interest in those kinds of phenomena within mm -hmm. humanistic psychology, but humanistic psychology is a bit marginalized within mainstream psychology. It's seen as a bit fringy, you know, so uh, and then maybe you see it in some of the psychology of religion. There are people studying psychology of religion and spirituality, but I've never, and where mm -hmm. they might be interested in studying gratitude or maybe even experiences of awe, but they haven't connected them up to a notion of the good life. So the chironic, mm -hmm. I do think is, yeah, it's distinctly, uh, it, it's an emerging, I would say, view of the good life, but there's some mm -hmm. resistance to it. I just, I just submitted mm -hmm. a paper you know, talking about this chironic notion of the good life. And I had the, one of the comments from the reviewer was like, well, what about atheists? You know, what are they going to do? <laughs> and I was like, good question. <laughs> you know, uh -huh. uh, do atheists have a sense of the transcendent? Maybe. Uh, mm -hmm. But I didn't have, I mean, I'm just telling you what the evidence says. You know what I mean? Right. I, Right. Atheists can figure out what they want to do with that. That's not my problem. <laughs> yeah. So, so is there, is there a big pushback looking at that because it's bringing in religious language yeah yeah i think that at, when i did my research again i was an atheist when i originally did mm -hmm. my qualitative research on joy and was surprised to find this sort of spiritual language in, in being used but that that was what participants use they use language that was the only way to describe it is mystical mm -hmm. kind of language. You know, they're mm -hmm. trying to get, they, they had this, just, just like the people who have mystical experiences, they were talking about how difficult it was to translate those experiences into language. In fact, mm -hmm. when I was originally interviewing people about their experiences of joy, I didn't get very good data because people were really struggling with how to take this experience and put it into words because they, mm -hmm. they, they had a hard time doing that. And I think sometimes they felt, like it felt awkward and they would get mm -hmm. quiet. And so I found that having them do abstract drawings using color and shape to try to 
communicate it, gave them some license to use like metaphor and analogy mm-hmm. and, and to be a little bit more playful about how they were trying to speak about that. And that was that was a perfect intervention because suddenly it was very rich data and people like, Oh, you mean I can use metaphor? (laughs) You know, I can Mm -hmm. uh, invent a kind of language to try to describe this pre-verbal experience. And then Mm -hmm. that was, again, when they did describe it, it was language that was very mystical. So experience Mm -hmm. of uh, having a sense of timelessness or the eternal, an Mm -hmm. opening onto uh, a transcendence, uh, a feeling of being, somebody talked about feeling cradled, by the world being nurtured by the world like personifying this sort of transcendent mm-hmm. not necessarily designated as the di- distinctly divine or god but it has a sense of that right that quality yeah. of a of a personal uh relationship it wasn't you know a cold indifferent world this is an experience yeah. of a world that was almost aware of them and meeting them in some way in that experience it was very, very came yeah. across very clearly what, what i think is really interesting is when when you're when you listen to what you just said, if you if you are someone who came from a very traditional religious, especially Christian background, and you heard someone using that language, I mean, I I, I grew up in a very strong evangelical home uh, mm-hmm. before I became Catholic. When I hear what you just said from from that perspective, my 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 ears kind of perk up and say, well, that just sounds really new age. And oh, it's this, and, and it sounds like this, it sounds like this looking for spirituality outside of, of this, you know, Judeo-Christian tradition. Mm-hmm. But from, but looking at that from a, from a, a, a non-theistic background, you would hear, well, this person is, is trying to come up with something to make them feel better about themselves. Or feel mm-hmm. more more comfortable that they're that they're looking for something that's not really there. Mm-hmm. But what's really interesting is you have people using language that they they're not they're not thinking about the religious aspect of it. I'm I'm sure, no. and but they're looking for language that is describing what's going on, and it's not using the the language that we would hear in church. Right. But it is, but is it, it's approaching that, right? In right. language that they understand. That's right. Yeah. So it's you know they're drawing upon language that might you know these are not theologians you know who thought through right. what they're saying you know uh, from a theological perspective you, you they could you know if you were approaching what they were saying theologically you might want to clarify you know some of the points mm-hmm. that they're making it's they're they're grasping for something yeah that uh, is more you know sort of it's maybe call it pre-rational i wouldn't say it's irrational Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. pre-rational they haven't clearly articulated that experience yet Mm -hmm. they're trying to formulate it you know you can turn to philosophy and turn to theology and go okay here's what's going on here and then begin to clarify that and that's sort Mm -hmm. of what some of my work has been is going back and looking at this data and then reading philosophy reading theology and then trying to say okay Mm -hmm. what's going on here and it's contrary to what you were expecting when you first started studying this as right. you said, you know, you know, last time you were expecting to see people using language that would really center their experiences around their own selves, around their own bodies, and they're right. reaching out beyond themselves. Right. Yeah, I thought people would be, the the pleasure would be more, you know, uh, 
self-focused right and uh like the feeling the pleasure in their bodies in some way you know the the joy you know the feelings of joy within the body and mm -hmm. uh but there there was that they talked about this feeling of warmth moving up and out of the body but it was all about this opening up towards another toward a transcendent mm -hmm. other mm -hmm. and so in that sense it was it had a very they started using language it sounded very very mystical i don't think i mean some maybe talking in ways that might sound a little pantheistic or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if that's maybe where the new age feeling might come from. Uh, I think there's some of that. Yeah, some of that kind mm -hmm. of is when they're talking about a transcendent God, are they talking about a God that's sort of imminent that, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, you know, or a kind of like Gaia type of, you know, mm -hmm. the world is like a divine being or something like that. Mm -hmm. it, it, it depends on the person you talk to. I think they're right. grasping for language that they that they know uh, that might be familiar with them, maybe from their own spiritual background or things that they've heard from other people yeah. to try to formulate what they're saying. But it's not worked out very carefully in some right. theological sense. So it makes me think of, and I can't, I'm, I'm blanking on where this is in, 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 this, in scripture, but the passage says, you know, we have eternity written on our hearts. Mm. That there is, that without even understanding, you're not, I think there are a lot of people that see religious experience as something that you only have because you go to some religious group. Right. And right. until you are exposed to this religious group, you're, you're having, you know, all of your experiences are in your mind or in yourself, like what you are expecting people mm -hmm. to be talking about. But you have people experiencing a transcendent without... Um, without knowing what to call it, right? Right, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's interesting because you can even look to developmental research. You know, there's, there's been a lot of research over the past 10, 20 years that have really called into question this idea that people sort of are born sort of atheists, like the blank slate, mm -hmm. you know, uh, if you go back yeah. to like John Locke, you know. Uh, we're not blank slates. Uh, we're born with mm -hmm. certain predispositions, and one of those we're starting to find is a predisposition to theism mm -hmm. Look, using really creative research in a uh, developmental psychology, but from a very early age, children seem to be disposed to perceive uh, agency, you know, in the universe in, in mm -hmm. uh, beyond them. And, and also from a very early age, Oh, by the way, this is even with parents that are atheists, they're finding this in children and uh, a disposition to, believe in, in that, that they're they're eternal that their their soul is immortal mm -hmm. is very mm -hmm. uh ubiquitous it's you see that in children who aren't raised in religious families even in those uh, with parents who don't believe in an afterlife and we've even done some interesting research where if you if you have an atheist perform certain tasks that would uh that, that might imply that there's sort of a perception of a creator or agency behind events uh, normally, they would if they're if they're uh, don't have a high cognitive load and they're conscious of what they're doing, they would deny that. But mm -hmm. if you create high cognitive load, if you have them doing multiple tasks and uh, you present information very quickly, then mm -hmm. even atheists will default to more theistic ways of understanding things. Mm -hmm. uh, so that seems to imply that atheism or agnosticism is kind of a you know requires a kind of higher cognitive. Hmm. denial of something that's more innate.
And I think that research evidence supports that. I feel like I've I've read this before. People talking about uh, a god gene that, that there <laughs> that there are that there are, that there's something in our genetics, as you said, it disposes us right. to to look for something beyond ourselves. And what I think is really interesting about that is the more that I learn about the study of, of the sciences, and you know, I've read a few great books recently hitting on this this idea. There are some people that want to be able to prove God through science, and there are some people that want to disprove God through science, but realizing that you know God is completely transcendent above us and, and cannot be proved or disproved through science. But people can look at this disposition for the transcendent, the disposition for, uh, for this understanding that there's something beyond us. And yeah. one person can say, well, that's just proof that all that we see about God is just in our head. Right, right. <laughs> and, yeah, but then there's someone else. Yeah, but then there's someone yeah. else that can look at it and say, well, this is proof that God created us and wired us up to know him. Right. It's it's uh, you know when I talk I do I do have a lot of conversations with uh, atheists and agnostics. I belong to several groups where theists and agnostics debate each other. Like we, mm -hmm. it's people who like to debate. Sometimes people are, there's just a lot of trolls in some of these places. Mm -hmm. But sometimes you can get to really good dialogue, and I learn a lot about mm -hmm. how atheists and agnostics think. And and I brought this up in the groups. And generally, what I the the atheists tend to point out, and I and quite rightly that uh you know this but that what sometimes is referred to as a hyper agency detector <laughs> you know like this boy with this pre you know they would say well you can explain that from from the perspective of evolutionary theory and say mm -hmm. that we evolved to perceive agency because you know if something's moving in the weeds over there it could be some agent that's going to eat you and if you if you're biased toward detecting that right. then that's going to enhance your survival and yeah well of course i wouldn't deny that uh but that doesn't mean that God couldn't, if there is a God, right, which we believe, mm -hmm. uh, that that God couldn't, you know, use an evolutionary process to implant an idea of him in us, yeah. you know. I, yeah. it's, it, you can take that in either direction. But yeah, science is not equipped to uh, prove theism. It's uh, God mm -hmm. is transcendent of his creation and that, you know, you can't do an experiment where you're like, okay, let's create a world that's without God and see if it's different than the world with God. And, <laughs> you know, uh, it would be cool, cool if we could, but it would be, if we could manipulate God as an experimental variable, then it wouldn't be God. We, we might be studying something, but it wouldn't be God. Well, uh, either that or that would make us God. And Right, you know, exactly. We'd I'd, have to be God in order to do that, yeah. So yeah. I think that so, atheists kind of use that to their advantage, right? Because they'll say, well, if you can't prove that God exists empirically, then God does not exist. But if you yeah. if you are able to demonstrate a God who can be, if you're able to demonstrate proof of a God that's open to empirical testing, then it wouldn't be God. Right. So it's a catch-22. Right. Right. And uh, so what I tended to point out is that uh, science really, in so many ways, presupposes an orderly universe. And mm -hmm. there's no reason to presuppose that without right. believing why, yeah, God. Why isn't it just, why isn't it just random, completely random? Yeah. Uh, right. In fact, that's a much more, if you're completely open-minded without any presuppositions, any metaphysical mm -hmm. presuppositions, your default presupposition would be like things are, I mean, just look around you, things seem pretty chaotic a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. Not mm -hmm. very orderly, certainly not law-like, right? If you look at how yeah. people behave, <laughs> you know, so, 
we, we have plenty of reasons to say that things are very unpredictable and chaotic. And if you look to polytheistic, you know, pagan traditions, that's generally mm -hmm. how they view the world. I mean, you know, yeah. why look for laws in the universe mm -hmm. when you're dealing, you're just dealing with a capricious God, you know, the God of the ocean or the God of the sun or whatever mm -hmm. God you're dealing with there, you know, depends on their mood that day, you know? Yeah. Um, they woke up on the wrong side of the bed and they're going to have a, you know, bring a big storm. Yeah. I just re I watched the Clash of the Titans, that old 1981 <laughs> version with my son, because uh -huh. uh, he's learning about Greek mythology, you know, uh -huh. and you know how the the whole story is like, is I think it's Zeus and uh, I'm trying to remember the which which of the other gods he's I think is it a, Zeus and Athena are sort of bowing it out, you know, because he Odysseus is his son and <laughs> he's jealous because mm -hmm. uh, and draw, uh, the, the the whole thing is that these gods at war with each other and Odysseus, the poor yeah. Odysseus caught in the middle of it, you know. Yeah, that's how they perceive the world. It was not an orderly world. You wouldn't look for laws, universal yeah. laws, in, in a world like that. You need a yeah. monotheism where you have one yeah. logos. Uh, so it doesn't make. So I think, uh, and I have had conversations with intellectually honest atheists and agnostics who acknowledge, yeah, okay, that you seem to be right, that there's, it seems to be a metaphysical set of presuppositions that maybe are necessary to give birth to our understanding mm -hmm. of science and the search for universe models. But once we, once we get there, then we can dispense with all that. <laughs> and going back to, you know, we were talking about that, you know, there are people that, that will say, well, you know, you can't prove that God exists. And so, right. therefore, let's just not even worry about him and think about him. And unfortunately, you know, there are people out there that say, no, 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 no. I can prove that God exists, and here's why. And they'll, they'll come up with this list. Um, but they're, in a way, they're kind of playing into the hand of, of the atheist to say that I can prove God exists. Because then they're, they're just getting into this... Uh, argument of, you know, can or can't you prove that God exists? But then you go back to your experience, the experience you had on, on your retreat, and you weren't, you weren't convinced because of some argument that God exists. You, you had an experience of God, and that is what brought you in. Right. So talk about, talk about that, about how, how you talk about um, psychology and joy and all the stuff that you're working on um, as a, as a way to talk about our experience with God, but then realizing that that it's going to take some mystical experience right. for someone to say, "Oh, okay, oh, okay, now I get it. Now I see yeah. that God is I out there." I don't think I could have reasoned my way to uh, the faith that I have now. That like re mm -hmm. that, that reason alone, may, you know. Uh, might have got me i think i would maybe be open to something that was more kind of a deism maybe you know uh mm -hmm. at most at best uh from using purely reason and i found that's been my experience too i mean there's some great arguments for theism uh i mean mm -hmm. the, the four proofs from aquinas uh but you know platingan's stuff uh his 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 more recent ontological version of the ontological argument sort of a, a revival of anselm i think is a very powerful argument um Lonergan's argument from intelligibility the way it's developed by Robert Spitzer in his book the cosmological argument there, there's some really powerful intellectual that are very intellectually satisfying mm -hmm. but I find that I don't think any of those would have been you know what I mean I would have been like pretty skeptical been like man eh, mm -hmm. it's it's like a it's a it's it's an intellectual trick of some kind you know it's yeah kind of how I might have 
thought about it. And that's kind of how I've experienced it when I've used those kind of intellectual arguments. Like, again, I, the atheists that I talk to love to debate those kind of arguments. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, rarely have I seen anybody go, oh, well, I've read Plantinga's ontological argument. Now I'm a theist. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh -huh. It's more like something that people go back to to try to reconcile, I think, their, their intellectual experience with mm -hmm. something that's more mystical. So that's kind of what happened to me is mm -hmm. I, I was still very much a skeptic. And then I had this experience, which can only be described as mystical, and I just couldn't deny it. It was like mm -hmm. seeing, you know, an apple in front of you and saying, yeah, there's an apple there. And somebody's saying, no, mm -hmm. it's not. And you're like, no, I see the apple. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I can't deny it. You know, I can hold it. I can touch it. I yep. can taste it. It's real. And that was the kind of experience that I had, you know. And uh, so it was, I think that that's true. That, And I think it's also theologically it's important, you know, uh, because, you know, with our within the tradition of Catholicism, uh, but but also in most versions of Protestantism, faith is a gift. It's not something you mm -hmm. can kind of work your way to intellectually. Mm -hmm. uh, it it may be there a disposition to it, but you know, you could argue that as a consequence of the fall, we're very cut off. We can become very cut off from that disposition mm -hmm. and distant from it and numb to it. You might say yeah. numb to that call with it that's in our true nature and that it's really a gift it requires god's grace and intervention mm -hmm. to open us up to his that there's a personal god that there's not just you know a sort of deistic god who sort of wound up the clock and then let it run yeah. and then went about his own way but this is a god who is intimate with us and deeply involved with us all the time you know mm -hmm. uh every hair on our head, right, as it says in scripture, that yeah. kind of God is very hard to just reason your way to. It requires a kind of, not irrationality, but a kind of super rationality. Yeah. Your, your reason takes you so far, and then the faith takes you to the, the grace that gives you that faith takes you to the next level. And that's really what I experienced. What I think is really interesting is since I started, since that experience, I felt that I've become my theories in my psychology has become more rational, not less rational. Mm -hmm. I had begun to lose faith in science, right? Mm -hmm. I became sort of a, a bit of an existential, you know, postmodern nihilist, you know what I mean? <laughs> Thinking that it's all socially constructed because it was this idea, well, why should we assume that anything is orderly? And it's, yeah. and there's all these debates and, and every, and science is always coming up with these conclusions and then they get overturned. Thomas Kuhn wrote that famous book, the, Na the Nature of Scientific Revolutions. His whole point was that science isn't really cumulative. We, mm -hmm. we, we build up a worldview using empirical evidence and then anomalies, things that don't fit that, build up over time and everybody tries to ignore them and then they accumulate so mm -hmm. much that people can't ignore them anymore and the whole worldview shifts. And then every, <laughs> all the old facts have no relevance anymore. It's all just, you know, thrown out like phlogiston in yeah. the history of physics. And that, yeah. if that's what science is, then why are we even bothering? You know, right. what's the point? It's pointless. The, the whole right. point of doing science is to arrive at universal, eternal, you know, truth, universal truth, mm -hmm. at least within the physical universe or within human behavior. Yeah. And so I really started, I was bought into that, a very social constructionist kind of historicist reading of science. And so I had really kind of even lost faith in science. And I see that in a lot of my colleagues too. Mm -hmm. uh, some people, uh, do not that so, there are some people that are you know scientistic right that their mm -hmm. science kind of becomes a replacement for faith in an odd way mm -hmm. uh, 
as a, and it becomes a kind of metaphysics, which is not what science is supposed to be. It's not a metaphysical mm -hmm. materialism. It's a empirical yeah. inquiry. But so there's yeah. that whole problem. But I think if you keep going down that road, <laughs> you're really intellectually honest, you end up in this kind of skepticism and nihilism. And that's mm -hmm. kind of where I was. Uh, and since I started, you know, going back and reading Aquinas and understanding the history of psychology and how it m emerges really very early on, starting in the 12th, 13th, 14th century. And it begins with this metaphysical understanding of, you know, an orderly universe that mm -hmm. uh, that reason begins to make sense within mm -hmm. that metaphysical framework. As soon as you take that metaphysical framework away, this is why my atheist friends, I disagree with them. I don't think we can just do away with, okay, the metaphysical assumptions got us to this idea of science, and mm -hmm. now we can just get rid of them. I think if we get rid of them, it's like pulling out the chair from under the whole thing. Uh, right. Well, if you, if you get rid of them, then, then what are you going to, to study? Right. But, you know, it's the positivism is a real big problem there because positivism has convinced people that anytime you talk about metaphysics, that's just bunk and nonsense. And so <laughs> right. all we need to do is, as if they're not doing metaphysics, there's all kinds of metaphysical right. presuppositions. They're just unexamined metaphysical yeah. presuppositions. There's a meme out there where you, where you see, you know, I, I'm going to butcher this, I'm sure, but, you know, there's one guy who's like, well, you know, you, you do philosophy and I'm going to do science. <laughs> And then the other guy goes, well, why do you study science? And he says, I'm studying science because, and the other guy goes, well, you're doing philosophy. Right. <laughs> right? You know, we're, we, right. We, all, we all have a philosophy. There is a tendency for people to want to, want to say, well, I'm, I'm going to study the facts. Right. And, it, you know, I'm, and it's the facts that matter. And you're over there doing philosophy, trying to figure out why things are. Right. But I just want to study the facts, and I'm not going to worry about philosophy but you're still, no, you can't, the way we're wired with philosophy, right? We, we can't, we can't right. do anything without having a philosophy behind it. Yeah, it's, it's, you either have a, a, a philosophy that you're aware of, or you have a philosophy that you're unaware of. Which of those mm -hmm. is the better? You know, obviously <laughs> the one that you're aware of and that you're thinking self-critically about. A lot of yeah. people who are scientistic, who thinks philosophy doesn't have anything to teach us, uh, or, you know, they just aren't aware that, I mean, empirical, empirical epistemology comes out of philosophy, comes mm -hmm. out of John Locke and David Hume, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's full of all kinds of philosophical presuppositions. When people say, oh, I'm just studying facts. Well, a f to, to delineate a construct of interest that you're studying requires you to define what it is, mm -hmm. you know? So... Uh, like what in my study of joy, part of what I was trying to understand was even prior to what you, before you can go out and measure something, you have to understand what it mm -hmm. is. So I yeah. was trying to understand, well, what is joy? You know, that's a kind of, a, that's a basically a metaphysical kind of question. It's a question of essence. Yeah. You know, what is the essence of something? That's, that's why I was doing a phenomenological approach because it answers those kinds of essence questions. Mm -hmm. So once I got that, then I could develop a measure, a quantitative measure, and I could see, you know, when people, you know, score high on joy, they, they scored high <laughs> on gratitude and they scored high yeah. in awe and it, yeah. and that, uh, they were happier. They had a higher subjective well-being. but I had to define what it was first. And that it's those moments that that's what gets skipped over. People just, you know, a lot of times in psychology, but I think in science in general, they're, they, you know, it's like they sit around with their graduate students, you know, in their research labs and they just define things mm -hmm. and they think that that's science, but that, that, you know, <laughs> 
that, that no, it's not. It's a pre-empirical. As soon as you define something, if you say this is what's physical and this is what's non-physical, this is real. That's yeah. not real. As soon as you're doing that, you're engaged in metaphysics. I mean, the yeah. all of physics. You go back to Galileo, and he makes that distinction between primary and secondary objects, where you know what what's within the domain of physics is what can be quantifiable. And he thought that was basically just two qualities: extension, you know, how much things take up space, and movement, mm -hmm. because you can quantify those things. Mm -hmm. And then, well, what about everything else? What about morality and values and aesthetics? Well, those mm -hmm. are all secondary qualities. They're dependent on the observer, including mm -hmm. sensory experience. And then that all, that's the, that's the birth of psychology, because then we're like, okay, well, how does this stuff in here get experienced out there? And how does the stuff out there yeah. get experienced in here? It becomes this whole yeah. subject-object problem that, uh, yeah. you know, laboratory psychology comes along and tries to fix yeah. men. And, and, and we're trying to figure out all of the stuff out there by just studying what's in, what's in here, right? Right, right, right. exactly. That, that's a big problem. I think that whole primary-secondary quality distinction that Galileo makes is uh, is was was important in a certain sense for him because we all know mm -hmm. one of the problems with Galileo, what got him into trouble, is he had a tendency to wander outside of his domain into theology. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. and yeah. No, nobody would have minded if he had just done science. You know, but he kept wanting to draw <laughs> theological conclusions from his science, and mm -hmm. that's where he tended to get into hot water. But um, yeah, but he, th I think, in a certain sense, when you the, the value of restricting, kind of bracketing all other qualities except what's measurable, is that it'll, it does allow you to do things. You you develop a mm -hmm. kind of mechanical philosophy that gives you some power. You can send somebody to the moon mm -hmm. and then bring them yeah. back again, right? Yeah. So mechanical philosophy is cool, but if you, then you reduce everything to mechanism and assume that that's what reality is, and you and I are just we're just machines, and then Descartes tries to bring. Yeah, Descartes tries to bring the ghost back into the machine, you know. But if that's all we are, a bunch of atoms, then we're back to you yeah. know, what Viktor Frankl calls the existential vacuum. That's where I was. That, yeah. that was where I was as an atheist. I believed that. I thought that all all qualities were just things, you know, electro, electrochemical stuff in our brain. And that when we die, it was all going to go away. You know, like at the end of mm -hmm. Blade Runner, when, what's the name of the... <laughs> The, the Rutger Hauer's character, you know, it's all going to go oh. away, like tears in the rain, you yeah. know, <laughs> like, yeah. that was kind of how I thought about it. The set yeah. kind of melancholy about it, you know, wanting, wishing, there's a despair in that, uh, yeah. an inability to hope that yeah. is, uh, is a real serious problem. I think it's a big problem with our youth today, getting back to psychology. There's a high rates of depression and anxiety mm -hmm. in our youth. And I think a lot of that has to do with metaphysics. Ironically, people believe that nothing is real they doubt everything mm -hmm. there's a there's a kind of victor frankel called it existential vacuum right this sort mm -hmm. of emptiness uh, mm -hmm. in uh, uh at the heart of our assumptions about reality that is yeah. really not a way to build a life and certainly not a way to find joy in life yeah. i think it's really interesting then that you are studying joy from a psychological viewpoint because you know, here is something, you know, as, a, as, as Catholics, we, we realize that we need meaning. You know, we mm -hmm. need purpose. God created us to find purpose and meaning in our life, to find joy. Um, but if you try to talk to someone who doesn't believe in God, you can't say, well, this is what God wants for you. But they're going to say, well, well, I don't believe in God, so why would I even think about that? 
Right. But if you can talk about joy from a, a psychological perspective and use that language, right. it, that, can be, that can be a doorway into having someone say, oh, you know, maybe there is something transcendent. And here's someone that's speaking, you know, who's not trying to throw a religious language at me, but is, is saying something that, that I, I can more relate to. You know, he's, mm-hmm. he's talking about really studying it from a scientific perspective, but he's still pointing at something transcendent. Yeah, I, I think it, this, going back to, we were talking about Groundhog Day in, our, in my last episode that had an influence <laughs> on me. And, you know, one of the cool things about Groundhog Day, I show that in one of my class, in that happiness class that I teach. Mm-hmm. And it's an interesting, one way of looking at that movie is that Bill Murray's character, Phil, Phil Connors is is fortunate to right to be able to live the same day over and over again, even though it's a kind of pur- purgatory for him, you know. But he's mm-hmm. able to live the same day over and over again, so he can experiment with what really makes him happy, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like he's sort of a scientist, right? He's try yeah. every day he tries out something different. In the beginning, he's like it's a hedonic version of happiness. So mm-hmm. he eats all the food that he wants, and he does everything yeah. he wants to do. Oh, that 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 scene where he's stuffing <laughs> that cake into his mouth. <laughs> He's stuffing, yeah. He's eating, all, stuffing all that stuff in his mouth. You know, that's the heat, the hedonic mm-hmm. vision of the good life, and that fails. You know, mm-hmm. try it if you want. I did. I got fat. Mm-hmm. It's basically what happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, 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 it did make me happy. It made me unhealthy, mm-hmm. if anything. Uh, and it, people tend to take risks that they don't need to make when they're just following hedonic vision of happiness. It's not a healthy lifestyle. It doesn't make you mm-hmm. happy. Uh, and anybody who lives that life of, of pleasure, I think, tends to, and desire, immediate gratification kind of comes mm-hmm. to that point. Drug addiction is maybe the most obvious example of that. I mean, mm-hmm. what better way to achieve immediate gratification and hedonic happiness than using cocaine? Because mm-hmm. you're literally directly stimulating your nucleus accumbens, which is the pleasure center in the brain. The only mm-hmm. way that you can have a more direct influence on your nucleus incumbents would be like putting an electrode in your nucleus incumbents and a button attached to it, which is how they actually, they've studied addiction doing that with mice. And, uh, but is that really, is that what happiness is pressing your nucleus incumbents mm-hmm. all day? That's pretty pathetic yeah. life. Yeah. Right? And, uh, so you, people obviously would want more. They don't want pleasure to just be this feeling. They want it to be about something that mm-hmm. actually is good. Like something that transcends mere feeling or immediate gratification. So they, and it, so what does Phil do? Well, now he tries to win this girl, uh, this, mm-hmm. this woman. And when that fails, uh, oh, he for a while there, he also decides he's going to do it through liberty, right? Through freedom, emancipation from the law. So he flouts mm-hmm. the law. Remember, he goes into prison. Mm-hmm. And he wakes up the next day. He's free of prison. He's like, I can do anything. Yeah. Well, that doesn't make him happy either. So he, all these things that were taught in our culture in, in different ways will make us happy. Don't make Phil happy. What makes him happy is first he goes through an ego death, right? He mm-hmm. this, this through this repetitive suicide. You can sort of interpret that as a kind of ego death, and then he comes out on the other side and he's altruistic. He's he's looking. Mm-hmm. He's saying, "Okay, I'm going to try a different approach. I'm going to try to better myself through creative endeavors." Right? He mm-hmm. becomes ipe sculpture. He learns to play piano, but he mm-hmm. also says, "I'm going to be there. I'm going to be someone who is going to give myself to others. I'm going to yeah. gift my time, my day." He's helping the old ladies with their tire. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's yeah. helping the little boy who falls from the tree. And the, he and the mo- the real transformative moment is when he discovers that that homeless man 
dies at the end of the day, mm-hmm. the guy who he refused to give a donation to. So he yeah. takes him to the he takes him to the diner and feeds him. Yeah, <laughs> a does big whatever meal. he can to save him. Yeah, and I think so. I think what that tells is there's an encounter with mortality, an awareness of affinitude and a desire for the transcendent, and mm-hmm. and out of that comes this abundant fecund what I would call fecundity. You know, this mm-hmm. this idea that I have this I have something to give right to other yeah. people and i want to give that to people and that's out of that comes this sense of belonging at homeness community in the sense of security well-being and a lot of that is an expression of love so I, i'm really interested now in how there seems to be a close relationship between a kind of agopic uh love and experiences of joy as well mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that is a a good place to wrap up this episode. Um, Thank you so much again, uh, Brent, for joining me. Um, I'm looking forward to having you back talking more about joy. And uh, I think there are a a lot of different conversations that we can have looking at this, uh, this concept of looking at the transcendent from the perspective of psychology and seeing where, where our minds can interact with with the world that God created, and a way to use that language of psychology to to show people that there is something that something beyond us, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely, yeah. I think uh, I think there's a lot to talk about. <laughs> so yeah, yeah I'm glad yeah. I'm glad I have an opportunity to be back because there's so yeah. much to unpack here and so many directions we could go. Yeah, it's a great. I, I love the I love the the whole concept of your podcast. So I'm, mm. I'm going to be definitely nerding out on your podcast awesome. on a regular basis. <laughs> not awesome. to, you know, not, of course, I'm not going to watch myself. That would be boring. But, uh, <laughs> listening to other people and learning new things. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining me, Brent. And thank you for joining me on another Nerding Out. I look forward to seeing you next week. God bless. Take care. Shut down.